going to be in Luke 15 this morning, if you want to open there. It's page 747, and the Bible's in the seats. Luke 15. And I'm going to show you something in a different language. You probably won't know what it means. You shouldn't. Uh, but So why am I doing it? It's the start of the story, I guess. Uh, this, you know what this is? In, uh, he has no hope. You'll never get it. In, uh, in the world of, uh, like, Air Force flying, that is the sign for crank engine number eight. Okay? See? I know some of you are like, oh, it's so close. <laughs> when, you're, when you count with your hands when you, in the Air Force, uh, like for pilots communicating with their hands, uh, this is one, two, three, four, five. That's six. You go sideways. Seven, eight, nine, and that's zero. If you're going to tell somebody how much fuel you had or send them to a different radio station and all that. Well, uh, we have one airplane in the Air Force inventory, actually one airplane that's ever been built that has eight engines. It's the B-52. It has eight jet engines. Can you believe that? <clears throat> and when I was going through pilot training, nobody wanted to fly it. It was sort of like the cancellation prize to... you. You graduated pilot training, but just barely. And uh, whenever you'd come in from a check ride, if you had busted your check ride or done really, really poorly, of course, news of this travels. So the whole room knew, the whole flight knew before your walk of shame back into the room. And we had one instructor who would minister to us through cynicism and ridicule. And you'd walk into the room and he would say like, you know, hey, Schmitty. And, you know, the guy would drag in his knuckles on the floor, would look up at him and he'd say, cranking number eight, cranking number eight. And that was his way of saying, that's what you're going to get because you're so bad. And that actually was affection. That's how affection looks in, in flying squadrons. Uh, the truth is in, a flying, in pilot training, Everything you do was quantified and graded and evaluated. There was a bubble sheet requiring a number two pencil for everything. Every single sortie that you flew, the bubble sheet was filled out. And you were put, your, your piece of paper was put in a big machine and you were reduced to a value, a number. Every student was an arithmetic equation. Every quiz got bubble sheeted. Every test got inputted. Even the flight commander with his minor discretion as to, you know, ranking the flight, even that was a bubble sheet. And you were, you constantly competing, constantly striving to, because you knew that you could get washed out at any moment. If you busted a ride, busted a check ride, it generated paperwork and more bubble sheets there were, your name tag would get a little red mark on it that told everybody that you knew that you don't know how to fly and you're just a loser. And, uh, or if you, if you misbehaved, God forbid, like showed up 10 minutes late, you'd get a little blue mark on your name tag and that told everybody you don't know how to get along with others. It was just constant, who's on the bottom, who's on the top, exactly where am I? For a little bit over a year, it felt like every, every minute was being evaluated. And you, you want to have those choices in life. 
Well, that was true for everybody in pilot training except for one group of people. And they were Air National Guardsmen. Air National Guardsmen were not competing. Their Air National Guard unit, say they flew F-15s, their Air National Guard unit flew F-15s. And so if they, as a unit, chose to send you to fund and pay for you to go to pilot training, all you had to do is graduate, and you're going to go back and fly the F-15. Doesn't matter how well you do, just, pass, just graduate. Everyone else is being evaluated, and they are coming. It doesn't matter if it was the premier fifth-generation fighter, like the F-22 fighter. If their F-22 guard unit sends them to pilot training and they graduate, they're going to go back and fly the premier fighter on the face of the earth. I didn't like that. Well, now I'm a guardsman, and I understand. Guard is like family. It's like family. You know, at home, my home, I don't have a filing cabinet at my home with files full of bubble sheets on my kids that I fill out when they go to bed. You know, how did the day go? Well, room clean, zero. Quiz scores, two. Yeah, I don't do that. I, we, we, have no, we have no bubble sheets on the kids. They will not wash out of our program. They're not going to wash out. They don't wake up in fear of washing out. Uh, There's no awards in our house either, though, because we're not evaluating them. And if we were going to have awards, it'd be like oldest child award, only girl award, because they're not being evaluated. How do you offer an award to someone who's fully accepted? Because they're family. It's just different. Now, I'm not saying we don't want them to do better. And I'm not saying that we don't lay down the law or, you know, want to strangle at times. I'm not saying that all of that, that's, that's natural. That's natural. But it's within the realm. It's within the sphere of acceptance. And we may be leaning on them, but not because we're evaluating them to see if they're going to be good enough to be in our family. We're leaning on them so that they can graduate become the next generation of whatever we are. That's what we want. In this parable today is a son who I think has forgotten he's a son and is living in that other land of worthiness, achievement, Evaluation, and that is the oldest son. Last last Sunday we focused on the youngest son. This Sunday will be on the older son, and next Sunday will be on the father. I want to read the whole parable to us. So sit under it. It's it's one of the high points of the word. Now Jesus is giving this parable. Just before I start reading, he's giving this parable in response to some concern that's coming out from the religious folk of the day. So you have these religious leaders, people very serious about what is right and what is wrong, okay? And they see Jesus fellowshipping, eating, dining, communing with known public sinners, okay? Tax collectors, prostitutes, sort of, people of the world. 
either one of our presidential candidates. He's eating with them. You thought, imagine how that might bother you. And they are, they're standing off in the distance and they're grumbling. Why is he doing that? And to that he gives this parable. Verse 11, and he said, this was a man who had two, there was a man who had two sons and the younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But then he came to himself. When he came to himself, excuse me, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this my son was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, look, these many years I've served you and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive he was lost and is found. 
Now, there's a lot of symmetry in this, in this parable between the younger brother and the older brother. I don't mean agreement, but the pattern, the pattern in which the story is told has a lot of symmetry. Like the younger brother, he, <clears throat> he gathers his inheritance and abandons the household. He leaves the house and he squanders the estate. And then in the despair of his sin, he comes to his senses and he figures, I might be able to serve as a servant in my father's house. And so he goes home. And as he's on the way home, his, he's not home yet. His father looks out at him, sees him, and goes out to him. His father's the one who does the work of reuniting. And his father restores his sonship. His father restores him into the sonship that he thought he had lost. This is, the first son is a parable of of sonship squandered and sonship restored. Well, the older son is different, but the pattern is very similar. The older son, the story tells us, the parable tells us, did not abandon the house, nor did he squander the inheritance. In fact, the older son is working in the field when we first come into contact with him. Where he's introduced to us in his righteousness, in his obedience. But that being said, the parable doesn't unfold in such a way that would make us think he's the good son and the other one's the bad son. The parable unfolds to make me think he has a problem also. The older son, something is not right with the older son. He's angry. A lot of anger at the restoration of the younger brother. And he won't come home. Do you notice that? He's on his way home. When he hears what's happening from the servant, he stops. Even that, you see the parallel? Both brothers have to come home. And in both cases, the father goes out to both of them. The older brother stays away and the father comes out. The father tries to reunite and that's where the parable hangs. That the question of the parable is really there. What will the older brother do? You've got to remember the parable is being told to the Pharisees. I mean, in the parable, if you can just lift it out among the Pharisees, they're watching from a distance Jesus fellowshipping with those who have lived recklessly. And they're angry at a distance. And so in, I mean, just as Jesus is telling this, he has come out to the older brother to explain it in parable. Come home. As the older brother begins to talk, the problem comes out. And I would, I would, I'm going to say the problem and then we'll, we'll dig into the problem. The problem is this, that even though the older brother never left the home, somehow he has drifted out of the role or out of the knowledge of his sonship and he sees himself as a servant. That's what I think is the problem. And, and I'll show you this here. Verse 25, when he sees the celebration at a distance, what is the result? The result is anger. The result is bitterness. The result is disagreement, a spirit of disagreement with the father. Right? His problem is with his father. 
He refuses to participate in the forgiveness of his father. I would say, I think he, his father has done something wrong. Or that the father is acting in a way that is contrary to what rightly constitute, constitutes family. Whatever the father did in the mind of the older brother, he should not have done. That's not how you treat someone who's done all of that. And then he says it in verse 29. This is where it all comes out. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you. I think that statement, that's to me the aha. That's his heart. I've served you. He now he's going to add to it, hey, you never, you know, never let me party with my friends. You know, I've dutifully served you. I've done everything you've told me to do. I've been obedient. What do I have to do? That's not the voice of a son. You even see it, by the way, when he speaks a little later in the 30th verse about his brother. Do you see what he says? But when this son of yours came. You you ever hear that? You know? Like there's times I've walked into the house after a long day of work and my wife says, your children. (laughs) Right? You know, the, the brother is saying of his brother, that son of yours, He, if he's a servant and not a son, if he sees himself, or if he interprets sonship as servanthood, okay, I think that's maybe a little bit more to the heart of it. If he's living beneath the banner of servanthood, then he doesn't have a brother either. Right? If he doesn't have a father, then he doesn't have a brother. Let me share with you that some of the differences between... Uh, Servants and sons or children. A servant transacts with his master. The relationship is transactional. Master says, do this, the servant does it. If it's a hired hand, same thing, it's transactional. It's a quid pro quo. You do this for a certain amount of money. With a son, it is relational, not transactional. That's the first difference. A servant is valued. Okay, whether it's a slave or a servant or a hired worker, they're valued for what they can do. A son is loved. The hope of a servant or of a hired hand comes through distinguishing himself through labor, from achieving from his bubble sheets filled out with number two pencils being better than everyone else's bubble sheets. He's trying to gain notoriety, distinguish himself, achieve, mark himself for success. That's where the value of a servant or a hired hand comes in. A son is valued by the very position itself. A son is valuable 
exactly because he's a son. The inheritance of the estate is going to go to the oldest son because he's a son. There's no other reason. Hired hands and children are a world of difference. Which would make me ask, why in the world would the oldest son, who has the whole inheritance, I mean, think of it, when the younger brother, just if you were going to apply their custom to the whole ordeal, when the younger brother left, he would have taken about one-third of the estate. That would have been tradition, unless there had been daughters in the family, okay? And they would have received about one-ninth for their dowry. So he would have left with about one-third. The oldest brother has everything else when the father dies. So why would the older son who has essentially is the heir apparent for the whole estate, how can someone like that drift out of the comfort of sonship? Why would you do that? Well, here's a few thoughts. The first one I have, and it's a fictional story, so I'm I'm now applying the parable to life. Why might somebody do that? Why might somebody who, I mean, how many scriptures were read this morning about us being the sons, the adopted children of God? Why would we leave that? What would draw us out of that? I wonder first, maybe he never thought of himself as a son in the first place. Maybe that's not how he's ever thought of himself in the house. Maybe he's always been serving. I mean, maybe the sort of transactional relationship has always been alive and kicking. Lord, if you do this for me, then I'll do this for you. Yeah, that's sort of like the prayers in foxholes. You know, the soldiers pray, Lord, if you get me out of this pickle, I'll stop drinking and I'll go to church. Right? That's a transactional prayer. It's not a prayer of a son. If you do this for me, God, then I'll do this for you. But, and somehow our tiny modicum of righteousness is supposed to give birth to a, the floodgates of faithfulness from the Lord. You'll hear this prayed or you'll imagine it or you'll pray it. (laughs) If someone in your family is sick or ill in a very dire way, there's some temptation. Lord, if you just save this person, then I will. That is not the prayer of a son. Lord, if you fill in the blank, then I'll praise you. That's just not it. The Lord is worthy of praise. And therefore, we pray to him. Now, I say this is not a a sonship. I'm I'm fully aware that every one of us grew up in a home with a lesser father than our heavenly father. Every one of us has, when we think of our parents, we're getting a pale image of the great Lord. And so some of us might very well have been raised in this sort of environment where love was not unconditional. 
where our father or mother were not always for our best. There's many fathers and mothers who are trying to extract their own life's meaning from their children and not the other way. And when a parent is feeding off a child, how is that child supposed to grow? So you may, right, and the best, <laughs> the best thing we have to imagine the Lord is our parents. He says, think of me as a father. And so in our own imperfect lives, sometimes we assume God's like that. He's not like that. The Lord is not transacted with you. The Lord has adopted you. You're his son or his daughter. How did you come into the household of God? You know, did you come in through one of these quid pro quo prayers? Have you come in thinking that uh, a certain amount of obedience or ascribing yourself to a certain religious pattern is makes you, now makes you acceptable to the Lord? You're coming in as a servant. There's another way of thinking about it, though, right? And again, I don't, he's just a fictional character, so I'm not really trying to explore his mind. I'm trying to explore our minds through the parable. What's behind the Pharisees? What's behind us, right? If the Pharisees are doing it, it's in us to do it. I think this drift from sonship to servant, from of the family to hired. This happens the moment we begin to assess ourselves in light of other people. The moment we begin to say, how am I doing? And in order to understand how I'm doing, I look out at others to assess that. The moment I fill out a grade sheet on myself, I begin to do this. And it doesn't mean that you think you're better. There's some people who love to fill out their grade sheets on themselves because they think they're better, and so they like to, mm, I'm rising in the ranks. Look how prominent I am. I mean, it's a good feeling to know. It is a good feeling to know that you're better than someone else. <laughs> That's why we do it. But when we judge ourselves that way, we begin to think that God judges us that way. The way you think about yourself is the way you think God thinks about yourself. And so some of you, some of us, at times in our lives, we think, you know, we are really, really accelerating because of how we're doing compared to other people. Others of us feel beat down because you come in and you're not that good at anything. And you look around and everybody else, they, they didn't need to know the page number for Luke 15. They're way more bible than me, you know? You know, you're allowed to be young in the faith. We all have to be born into the faith at some point. Be young. In our home, we really strive and struggle and, and fight to bring a sense of appreciation for the fact that someone, when they're young, don't need to be as good as you at something. They're young. Let them be young. You see, if we're just hired, if we're hired hands of the kingdom, you're worse than somebody who knows 
where Luke 15 is. If you're a child in the household of God, you're just a son or daughter. Because he's not evaluating you. He's not filling out a grade sheet on you. I had this thought this week, and it sort of blew my mind. You know how we say that Jesus never sinned? And I agree with that. I thought, well, how do I know that? He never told, did he, did he tell me that? You know, I realized Jesus, now I could be wrong, so I've got to be careful with the word never, because it's not like I did a comprehensive study on the subject. I cannot think of a single time where Jesus ever throws his righteousness in our face. Not one time. The perfection of Christ is inferred. It's concluded by the apostolic witness. But I can't ever think of Jesus saying, you guys, look at me. I can't find it. What I do find from the Lord is him telling others not to do it. Right? He who is without sin cast the first stone. So he preaches against it. And I see Jesus doing one thing all the time, which is turning to his father and talking to his father. This is the picture of a true son. For him, his behavior, what he's doing is motivated out of his love for his father, not out of a sense of I'm better than you or me. Imagine, he who is without sin, who's perfect, walked on this earth among all of us and never once threw it in our face. How do you evaluate yourself? Because chances are the way you think of yourself is the way you think God thinks of you. That's my hunch. I don't understand how a person could be grade-sheeting themselves in their own mind and then living vibrantly in the unconditional acceptance of the Father. It's just a hard sell for me. I want you to also notice that if you're not really a son or daughter, you can't be a very good brother or sister. And this is, the, this is the oldest brother, right? This son of yours, he says to his father. It hurts my heart. I mean, I know it's fiction. I know it's just a parable, but it hurts my heart. Why isn't he grieving when his brother left? Where's the grief? I mean, if his brother is dead to him, sort of like his mood sounds, where was the, where was the grief that you'd expect at a funeral? I find this in my own heart. If I don't like somebody, I don't feel like I need to love them. And when they go wayward, sometimes my tendency is to say, right, I'm trying to catch myself more and more, right? I'm trying to ask the Lord to change that. But I found myself going, well, I could have called that one. I saw that one coming. Like I actually give myself credit for predicting their demise. I fill out a grade sheet on myself. Wiser. Stick in the machine, my number went up. Where's the grief? You know, I mean, in the opening, when I even I even thought, do I say, do I say that political statement? And I said it. Because for me, they are two of the easiest people not to love.
That ain't right. I think we should be a people who, when anyone comes to the Lord, our knee-jerk automatic response is joy. Joy. In fact, the Lord's inheritance, right? His, his, his property is so great and mighty. <laughs> we all have plenty. Why, why are we sometimes such inadequate brothers and sisters to one another? One other thought, and I'll close this. And this thought is maybe one step out of the parable. So I'm lifting out of the parable a little bit. But I am caught a little bit by the way that the oldest son's spirit is not the spirit of his father, at least in the way he views work. All day long I serve you, says the youngest son, or the older son. Look, I serve you. I'm, I'm slaving for you all the time. That's something that someone would say if they don't really get why they're doing what they're doing. Doesn't he understand he's, he's actually caring for his inheritance, oddly enough? And I've thought of that. I've, I've, I've thought of, for many of us, and this is why I'm saying it, is maybe this can help you appreciate how we can be here. Is sometimes, when we come into the kingdom, I think for many of us, all of God's will doesn't make sense to us, right? Particularly some of the things you can't do. Right, when you sort of read the word and get a sense of what you're not supposed to do, there was a time in my life where I, di- I disobeyed some of those, right? But even when I obeyed them, I still wanted to do them. You know, don't do that. I, well, I won't do it because I'm now yours, but I still want to. My heart wasn't his heart. So I was in this house, and I was his son, but his work felt like a chore to me. If you feel that way, I just want you to know you need to drift into the fullness of being his child. And part of that is gaining, gaining a sense that what he has for you is all good all the time, always. Everything he wants for you is right, and it's for your good. And so when that part of our flesh longs, and ah, why can't I do that? Or I have to do that, right? I have to wake up and do this, or I can't do that. Right? That's showing us. It's just an indicator of we're not, we don't have his, the mind of the Father. And if and when we did, I don't think we could ever say, all day long I serve you, and what do I get? Because the truth is, being able to be a child of God is a blessing in itself. And that would be my prayer for us. You know, that we would wake up one day and that which was once labor is now blessing. That I get to wake up and I get to not do that thing that I used to do because he's in me enough to free me. That day will be a great day when I can rise and do something that used to be so hard for me to do but now it naturally is coming out of me. Right? When I hold on to the things that I have very, very loosely and I long for the things that you have with fleeting moments when I can appreciate your good days without begrudging my bad days. When that day comes, 
all will be a blessing. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord, I lift up everyone who came here, particularly those who may feel like a returning servant, returning slave, wary of what the Father might say, what will he say when he knows what I've done. Lord, right now, they need to know that you know what they've done and you are willing to leave the house to go get them. Whether it's from the depravity of sin or whether, Lord, it's simply from the drift of of pride, of being self-consumed. Help us to find true wholeness, the true peace of God in your family. May that, Lord, grow to be a great blessing and not a labor. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.